Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. I'm Brian Taves. Brian Taves comes to us from, I was going to say from afar, but no, he comes <laughs> right around the corner. He's actually a Bucks County local and provost of Cairn University. And Brian, tell us anything else you'd like everybody to know about you. Um, I enjoy riding my motorcycle and playing Madden 18. Wow. See, I, yeah, the man passed me maybe 2000. I don't know. It passed me many years ago. So I'm impressed that you can still play that. Yeah, it's awesome. But my fantasy football team is undefeated. Congratulations. Do you play fantasy football? No, I do not. I played one year. Wow. So we have a, do you we, play Madden we have a family league, so it's fun. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, it's fun. So, so today's Bulgashitsha and Friday Night Lights, convivial beverages. We've got a guest in house. And also, we did th- dealer's choice. We let Brian pick the topic. Right. Which we may never do again after he picked. Yeah, it's a, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. It's a really, you know. Okay, so earthquakes, tragedies in Mexico. Uh, the Caribbean's been wiped out. You know, there. You know, there's no power in Puerto Rico. A dam's busting. Houston's still recovering. Florida's still recovering. So we thought, what uplifting topic could we have for Friday night? And Brian said, "Imprecatory Psalms." Bam! There you go. There you go. By the way. We did have a Facebook Live question for you. Crotch rocket or cruiser? Uh, I have a BMW R1200RT, so it's a Reise tool. Reise tool. <laughs> oh, All right. Yeah, that. <laughs> All right. I like that. <laughs> the homeland still works. <laughs> exactly. So why imprecatory psalms? Uh, it's sort of a selfish uh, motivation. I'm teaching a course in the Book of Psalms this semester. Uh, I've had students ask me questions about uh, the anger of God and the anger of the psalmists. And so you're really actually, you're actually helping me with my class next week. So thank you. Well, shoot, we should do Gnosticism. <laughs> if we're going to do that. <laughs> exactly. or, or we should get like, send uh, the university a bill. I mean, here's just the consulting work. We didn't know we were doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just paratroop me. I'll just, I'll just fall in. I'll just drop in. Yeah. So for people that might not know what imprecatory psalms are, which is most of the straight world, it's like it goes busters too. Ray, you're scaring the straights. <laughs> um, these are Psalms, right? These are Bible verses that pray for God to judge people, to rain down judgment and things like that. Yes. They're coming. They're, all right. So from my understanding, but I'd like to hear yours, uh, you know, they probably do have, they may, do they have as much of a cultic setting or as they more, are they more personal? I mean, it's in some levels, I mean, the, obviously the prayers of Thanksgiving and the penitentials and things like that mm-hmm. are more cultic. And I guess this is the prayer book of the second temple. The Psalms. Right. But uh, there's part of them seem much more, they seem to be in many ways the most individualistic and personal of the Psalms. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Um, you know, once the 150 Psalms are um, collected and edited as a text, yeah. it gets separated from its cultic origins. Right. Because now it's as if the Psalter is like a traveling temple. Right. And so I think the imprecatory Psalms probably have a, a greater personal uh, appeal and relevance. Yeah. I, I Dude, maybe, can I ask you guys, do you guys know anybody that's prayed them and where it's been effective? I'm not at liberty to, to, to say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you have New Testament quotations from Psalm 109, so at least there's some sort of um, impact. I know someone that lives in this house that's done it. <laughs> <laughs> and she is my wife, and she was at Pensacola 
University, which somebody somebody I know uh, who's actually a patron of this podcast has said that is it's a, is a concentration camp for Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my wife was working for this guy who was like the meanest guy. Like he, it, she said that, that that was like a guy that did a lot of the work studies and, and just kind of revert racism. Gave like the Asian, you know, Southeast Asian students and South Asian like the bad jobs and gave you know the white students the good jobs and. She went, her brother was getting married and she went and said that, you know, I, I got to go, you know, I need a couple days off, you know, and then most of the professors, oh, sure, that's fine, whatever. But he actually said, well, there's a policy when you're off campus for a funeral, you can get several days, but for a wedding, you only get one day because there's going to be all sorts of ribaldry and things. And, you know, they don't really make sure she's not fornicating yeah. and doing mm-hmm. bacchanal. Yeah, they want to make sure you don't have a good time. Right. So she said, okay, how do I quit? He says, what do you mean? I'm choosing my brother over this school. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Where do I fill out a form to leave? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, after that, she prayed. She's like, look, I was a very pious soul. So I prayed imprecatory prayers. And that year there was a huge human resource problem with him and he got fired. <laughs> and the next year, the hurricane hit the Pensacola area, the big hurricane. So I'm just saying, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was effectual, but that's somebody that you know. Can I give you some? I don't know if that's I, you know, I per, per, you know, I, as principal, don't believe in that. But just in case, as your friend, do not cross your wife. <laughs> no, 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 exactly, exactly. But I, but so I think that um, just to keep it relevant for the for, you know for people out there in, in the audience. But I think that. Um, maybe we pray imprecatory prayers every Sunday when we cite the Lord's Prayer. I mean, what are what's the full implications of Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Um, when God's will is done, it's the realization of every prayer for justice that was ever prayed. Yeah, I'm thinking more of the lion and the lamb thing, but now you got that going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to stumble over it this week. <laughs> well, you know, but can I ask? I remember Dodge Allen said this. As kind of a check for sometimes the all too easy. I mean, I, I think working for true justice is the kind of thing that costs your life. But we all know there are certain places where almost speaking about justice is in style and it's almost, you know, you have to do it. And I remember Dodgers Allen one time saying, you know, if you really love justice, then the first prayer you pray is, may, it be, may true justice fall on my head. What does that mean? Well, it means that it starts with me. So that's like that, 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 <laughs> so the London Times, whatever had that essay contest, like in the early 20th century, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton just wrote in, I am PK <laughs> Chesterton. <laughs> but the idea that if we really love justice, then we'd want that, we'd want our lives to be in conformity with that. And most people want justice for themselves in terms of in relation to everyone else, but they don't want justice to fall upon them that they would have deserving. Well, it might be good for us to read one. I, I guess, you know, the lists are different. I mean, this, I, I guess I count about 10 or 12 of them in the, uh, in the, uh, Book of Psalms. Here's one of the most famous one, and it starts out so lovely, and there's all kinds of songs. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, sat and wept as we thought of Zion. So it's an exilic psalm, and depending on, you can either hear the reggae song, or you can hear Don McLean, or whatever. And uh, and there on the populars, we hung our up our lyres, for our captors asked us there for songs, our tormentors for amusement. There's also a beautiful song from Godspell, based on this. Um, our tormentors for amusements. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. It's sarcastic here. How can we sing 
a song of the Lord on a foreign soil. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to my palate. If I cease to thank you, if I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even in my happiest hours. That's so beautiful. And if he stopped there, it's kind of like if Luther had died at 30. But at any rate, um, then it goes on. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they cried, strip her, strip her, to her very foundation. Fair Babylon, you predator. A blessing on him who repays you in kind, what you have inflicted on us. A blessing on him who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. Thus end of the reading. Thanks be to God. Psalm 137. So, that's probably the most extreme. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, some of the others, you know, vindicate me from my enemy, Psalm 35, the se- or the wicked or whatever are personified. But, um, so, uh, you know, one of the things, <laughs> I also know a funny story, uh, uh, a, uh, um, my medievalist uh, was uh, who had who dreamed in Latin told this funny story about uh, that uh, when Vatican when they began moving every after Vatican II moving all the prayers into the vernacular mm. uh, one poor monk was devastated because obviously his Latin was very good wasn't very good and Psalm one thirty seven was one of his favorite songs <laughs> but once it got <laughs> to the vernacular it just that last that last chorus just kind of took the joy away from it. So what are we to make of? This is in our canon. And uh, so, Professor, Doctor, what should we do? Um, do you allow the other uh, not-so-dramatic uh, imprecatory psalms sort of contextualize that? Sure. Um, do you give um, emotional or poetic license to the narrator? Uh, is there a theological issue of um, lex talionis that uh, – plays here in terms of um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, I, I don't know. That's yeah. it's the it's the parade example for um, you might say the ugliness of judgment. And uh, yeah, although you know, my I, I think for you know when I'm talking to people about prayer, um, particularly I grew up in you know evangelical churches where public prayers would sometimes be as long as the sermons, or and people would you know either rehearse their quiet time, or sometimes preachers would either preview the sermon and and call it prayer, or go back and give us a postscript mm-hmm. of it. Um, what I think, <laughs> you know, what, if you, you know, both of those options are awful. They're all awful, yeah. But I I think when I'm talking to people about when I'm speaking to people about prayer, I say you know. Um, Prayers aren't primarily theological. They're, they're, emo- they're, a good prayer is emotionally and spiritually honest, meaning it's a prayer that is coming from, from your depths. You know, it's deep speaking to deep and, and where you at and where you are in your deep. Um, I mean, again, authenticity in prayer, I think, is what partially opens us up to God. And frankly, I mean, again, this is an awful prayer, but if I had watched my children be dashed on the rocks, I might be tempted to wish that upon my enemies. So I think in that, in its original context or in the memory of the original context, mm-hmm. which it represents, there is a kind of um, awful but true honesty about what kind of prayers you say after you've watched your people massacre. The other uh, very good example, it's not perhaps as dramatic uh, or violent as that one, is Psalm 109. It's, it's, I think it has the longest continuous uh, imprecation of judgment against God's enemies, and that's cited by Peter in Acts 1 with regards to Judas. So uh, there's a sense in which, um, you know, these imprecatory prayers may have particular reference to the uh, the Christ event, the coming of Jesus, and those who were against him. And so I wonder sometimes whether these imprecations have a pointed sort of eschatological 
direction in mind that it's the uh, it's the it's uh, the single enemy like Judas and the enemies of the Messiah that become the focal point of these imprecatory prayers. Well, you know, and and I, part of me wonders, like for instance, Psalm eighty nine is not usually considered an imprecatory psalm. Uh, you know, it starts out with this wonderful celebration of the you know God's covenant, and then you know it's a psalm of rejoicing and and the covenant with David, and then you know you know it's beautiful. Everybody is lovely. It's wonderful. How wonderful you are, God! And then you know it goes on for thirty seven verses. Verse thirty seven: His line shall continue forever. Speaking of David, his throne is the sun before me, as the moon established forever, as enduring witness in the sky. Selah. That's God speaking. And then the psalmist says. Yet you have rejected, spurned, and become enraged at your anointed. Mm -hmm. You have repudiated the covenant with your servant. You have dragged his dignity in the dust. You have breached all his defenses. You have shattered his strongholds. So, you know, I mean, in, in this one, okay, uh, the anger is turned to the main office. Mm -hmm. In other words, God. And I'm wondering sometimes, are not the impeccatory psalms displaced anger? In other mm -hmm. words, there's a sense where on one level— if you believe God is all in all, okay, so God's the one who's in charge to ask God to go after your enemies. And some level is also saying, okay, what, what's going on with you, God? How come, how come my enemy is prospering? Why are right. the wicked prospering? The thing about Psalm 89, it goes, it directs it to where it ultimately, where the, you know, you, there's no displacement of anger. Now, again, if you, if you, had the Babylonians destroy your family, you're rightfully angry at Babylon. But the universal witness of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the prophets were, was that that was God's judgment. Right. So even if you're angry at the Babylonians, the, you know, the one behind all this is the Lord God Almighty himself. So what do you, and so is, do you think part of that is what they serve as? They serve as a little bit of displacing anger or saying, you know how sometimes you talk to one person, but you're really talking mm -hmm. to someone else? Yeah. yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that in there. Maybe that's why they're there. Well, I think, you know, in general, at least the way that I look at it, there are, there are cries for justice. Mm -hmm. It's not um, personal vengeance. It's, it's actually an act of faith and hope in that God himself would intervene, arise up, O Lord, judge the earth, uh, that kind of thing. So I almost wonder whether there's a kind of um, release of anger sure. that comes with this, that you, the imprecatory psalms provide a path whereby uh, there's an injustice in the world, and it's wrong, and I commit this to God and put it in his hands. And so Psalm 4 says, be angry, but do not sin. And so I think there's a place for uh, that kind of anger, and maybe this, maybe the imprecatory psalms provide a kind of spiritual, emotional release, so that there's you end up by saying, "Be still and know that I'm God." Yeah, I think that, and that there's a couple of things that are important there. I think one is that you make a distinction between justice and vengeance. You know, like Miroslav Volf in a book, uh, I think it's called "Free of Charge." And the subtitle is "Living." Uh, forgiving grace and forgiveness in a, in a consumer culture. He says, you know, like on the level of exchange, there's, you know, if, if I um, take from you, you know, with with nothing in return, like usually we think of that as theft. And then, but normally where we live in civil, you know, in, in civil society is, is exchange. Now, like you're buying a car. Now, you might like to think that you got the best, the, a little bit better of the car dealer, uh, or they got a little better of you, but it, it, there, there, it's, there's some level of equity. It's proximate equity. And he says, you know, um, and then there's an exchange where there's, it's unilateral and that's a gift. And it's really interesting though, because sometimes, 
I think we're wary of gifts because it's like sometimes the gift actually feels like an exchange. My my auntie used to do this thing. She's a beloved person. Worked she and my uncle worked at colleges, and they would they had this like closet full of unisex gifts because people would bring them Christmas gifts, <laughs> and she would give them these you know cheese you know like little port wine cheese thing. Right, but she was you know it was because she there's this sense in which I don't want to be obligated. Is this gift really you know, an exchange? <laughs> and, and Volf says that if you take this into human relations. Uh, on par with um, stealing is revenge. Justice is more approximate to exchange. And then forgiveness is a gift. And I think that, oh, it's interesting because you look at like Psalm 137. He, I mean, he seems to at least do three things. He, like, he actually owns his anger. And I think, I mean, anger is a dangerous emotion to validate just because of where it can go. But like, but the alternatives, I mean, when we, usually we don't get angry, we're either dishonest or cynical. We're either Pollyannish about the reality of the situation or we're so cynical and think, well, you're saying it's a, it's a, it's a cry of hope. Like, once you're cynical, there's no anger. You're just like, well, this is the way the world is. So, like, so anger negotiates that way between like a kind of naivete or, or just, you know, put your head in the sand and cynicism. You know, he prays it, he takes that and like it doesn't leave it on the horizontal level, but, you know, offers it, yeah, to the author of, of all reality. And also, yeah, he does limit it. Like, he, you know, he doesn't say, may they never have existed, you know, like, or something, you know, there isn't. Can I, can I just say bashing children on the stones doesn't feel limited? Well, but he's saying like, what do what that happened to us? You know, like I mean, no, it's. I'm not saying it's 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 high minded, or it's not. He's. Well, I think it's natural. I think it's a very right. natural human thing. But he's saying apparently it seems like that's what happened to them. Yeah. All right, but, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure that's not revenge though. Okay, fifty eight. Oh God, smash their teeth in their mouth, shatter the fangs of lions. Oh Lord, let them melt, let them vanish like water. Let him aim his arrow. I was talking about Psalm one thirty seven. Oh. <laughs> so there you go, Bill. I mean, I'm, I'm sticking with the text in front. Of me. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm an evangelical Bible guy. You know, I'm just talking about one text at a time. You know, I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcast projects i've got in the works being a patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Well, but yeah. I, but maybe I guess part of it is, you know, if there's a theology, vengeance is mine. Maybe part of the psalmist is saying, okay, I'm calling for revenge. So if it's yours, pick it up, man. Right, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. 
No, yeah. I mean, I think to me, I, I still get back to the fight. Part of this to me, it uh, baptizes human experience. Yeah. I mean, I think to, that's to the, the power. I mean, again, I don't think you should ever teach theology from the Psalms, period. Okay. But I think Psalms teach you how to pray. And I think a lot of Christians don't pray honestly. You know, I think I, I was part of, remember that scene in The Apostle, which is a great movie, where, you know, Robert Duvall's upstairs and he's yelling and screaming and the neighbor calls and June Carter plays his mom and she goes, oh, that's all right. He's up there. He just yelled. He ain't got her. He ain't got her arguing. They're yelling at each He's yelling at God. And there's something, he works through it. That's part of where he's working through his, you know, he's done wrong. Wrong has been done to him. Uh, but there's something really particular that always reminds me of kind of the the vitality of the Old Testament faith present. I don't know that I'd want to say you couldn't teach theology for the Psalms. Oh, I think you can't. Unless you, unless you, well, you can do it if you use one of the four methods, fourfold methods. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you, you can bear witness to the theology, but I would, I think because they're experiential, I mean, you can pick and choose, but overall it's not a theology. But could you book. teach theology from any biblical text isolated? I mean, like with that, I mean, you couldn't, so, I mean, you couldn't do theology from the book, from the book of Genesis or Matthew or First Timothy or Romans, because the only way they're theological texts is to be in a canon. Otherwise, they're just ancient texts that could be unrelated. You know, but the fact that we put them in conversation is a theological judgment. So there's already. All right, what I say, I don't think it's you already would, theological think, like material. Well, you can do theology proper to the genre. Maybe I would say that. So if you want to do a theology of prayer, you can do that with the Psalms. But I don't think we want to say, I don't think we necessarily want to give a carte blanche okay to what the Psalms teach about the deity. The question that I have, um, to ask my students, and that is, how can the words of the psalmist to God become God's word to us? And it's a little bit related to your statement about these as emotional um, offerings to God. Right. But is that the extent of it? So when this becomes... Uh, written and it becomes part of our old in our Old Testament. How is how are these imprecatory psalms? If they are, how are they the word of God to us? Well, it might be it might be a wary place to take anger. Hmm. It might be a way to say, okay, there's no other way to get to the divine. You know, that's like um, um, in some levels, I often say that no one who's comfortably in America, middle class, or has enough to eat, or no one in their family is sick should read the book of Revelation. <laughs> in other words, because it's one of those books that only really, it's its a book that only comes alive in the context of understanding suffering and evil. So I think there's a sense where, um, you know, it's, <laughs> I had this conversation uh, uh, with someone today uh, and uh, who reached out, they were just, I don't know them, they just reached out to me online and they finally said that the book of Habakkuk had really been something that had got them through a hard time. Hmm. And I go, I said to him, I said, you are the first person I've ever heard that. But what that speaks to me is that there was something, and she, the person also said Hosea, the book of Hosea. So there was something in this person's experience, whether it be forsakenness or whatever, that that prophet gave gave language to that. So there, I think, I don't even want, I want to use something more beyond emotion. Maybe it's an existential, you know, mm -hmm. the sense of what it means to be human. And and so I, maybe I would put, I, I mean, I know that, for instance, I'm, I mean, right now I'm in the middle of teaching the patristics. And so the psalm is used as theology all over the place and mm -hmm. it feeds them. But but part of that was, you know, their, their life of prayer fed their theology. So I think, you know, there's a sense where can liturgical language and should liturgical language feed our prayer and our theology, then I will I will take back my earlier statement. I said, absolutely, our prayer should feed our theology. I just think there's some problematic. Uh, if you just, I guess if you treat the Bible as a source book 
are as, you know, everything is a theological absolute statement about the deity, then I think you get in trouble in the book of Psalms. I, I mean, I think you'd get in trouble if you if you dealt with any text that I way. Think, I know, but I think it's more so in Psalms. But, maybe, I mean, it's probably more so less with any text, but I think we'd, I mean, we'd always want to think like of text in light of texts. I mean, like we'd never want to say do theology for, uh, from the book of Psalms or the book of Matthew exclusively. I mean, we, 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 you know, or the gospel of John. Right, but, the there are, but, but there are subjects, for instance, if you're going to talk about the relationship between law and gospel, then Galatians and Romans are pretty much mostly where you're going to be. Okay. And so that's okay. I mean, in other words, certain books have certain predominant themes. But again, I, again, if you look at canonically, I agree with you in terms of canonically that, that ultimately the work of theology is scripture interpreting scripture. I get that. But couldn't you say in light of the fact that the Psalms are one of the most quoted texts in the New Testament, that the Jesus and the apostles saw the Psalms at least in some way instructional about the coming of the Messiah? Well, they certainly appropriated the the kingly psalms mm-hmm. as messianic and, and the lament psalms. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and also most you know, I mean, you think of most Christians, especially in the evangelical world. I mean, because I don't think this is probably true of the mainline because piety. But I bet you, like in the in evangelical circles, people people's theology is much more shaped by worship songs they sing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, thing in the Bible or the which is which is frightening a yeah, little bit. Yeah. I mean, it also. I mean, it also can you could it would be an interesting theological project or or dissertation project. How did the Psalter being almost the exclusive hymn book hmm. of reform circles, Puritans, reform circles. What did that do to their overall theology of God? I, I guess it would do some both positive and some fairly damaging things as well. Well, you know, there, it, this is from uh, J. Clinton McCann. He's one of my favorite uh, Psalms commentators. He says, this is in an article uh, just after 9-11, so... That's kind of the context. Uh, and the t- article is titled Toward a Non-Retaliatory Lifestyle. And he says, the Psalter is full of the psalmist's request that God destroy their enemies, as well as their frequent affirmations that God will indeed do so, or their celebrations that God has already done so. In a word, the wicked, foes, enemies are virtually omnipresent in the book of Psalms, especially in the psalmist's prayers. So just think what happens to a community of faith if they read the Psalms uh, every Sunday in order. I mean, you're going to come across uh, all these uh, imprecatory psalms, and it's got to have some kind of impact on the community of faith and your worship. Yeah, and right. so, if you're in, if you're the western part of the colonial Massachusetts, you're you're thinking about the French and Native Americans when you're <laughs> reading those arm enemy things. Yeah, it's like well, in the Book of Nahum, it's like ding dong, the witch is dead. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's one thing. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, Syria, Syria finally got hers. <clears throat> yeah. At, so here, let me throw this. What do you do about the clear teaching? I mean, it seems clear to me. I should put an asterisk. The clear, seemingly clear teaching of Jesus and reaffirmed by the Apostle Paul that you are to love your enemies. Hmm. So what do you do about passages in the Bible that talk about revenge or judgment on their enemies when you have this uh, this New Testament um, central ethic that, you know, at least for the first couple hundred years of the church, that was one of their marking, this is what we believe, this is who we are, that we love our enemies. So what do you do with that? Well, um, I kind of want to have both. <laughs> you know, I want to. Ha- I don't want to white out the imprecatory psalms mm-hmm. out of the book of Psalms, uh, particularly, like I said. Like uh, the lectionary does? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, serious, though. I always add it. By the way, when they take it out, I always put it back in because mm-hmm. it's there. Yeah, I, so, yeah. They keep taking it out. <laughs> Bill puts it back <laughs> in. <laughs> so, I'm, so, so I'd be really uncomfortable with that, uh, particularly like I said. I mean, Paul quotes from, I think, Psalm 
69 in uh, Romans 11, I think it is. It's an imprecation against Israel for the rejection yeah, of right, the Messiah. Right, right. You know, Judas's uh, fulfillment of Psalm 109. So I'm kind of so on that on that basis, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. This is this is just my thought experiment about that. Is that uh, what the Noahic covenant does? It creates a relationship with God and creation whereby there's peace until the end. And I'd like to have the interim ethic of the church to be love your enemies, pray for your enemies, uh, do good to your enemies, but at the same time, leave prayer for uh, believers to give the ultimate justice of God, which is uh, reconcile at the very end of time, give them a place where they can pray those prayers. But in the interim, they love their enemies. But we're in the end of time. Only (laughs) I can make things great and reconcile all these. What? Wait. What does reconcile mean? <laughs> so the best uh, Warfield lecture I've I, I've ever seen at Princeton, and maybe the best lecture I've seen, was given by Randall Zachman, and he was he's. I mean, I think it's he's it's it's unquestionable he's the best Calvin scholar in the world. I mean, he's read everything Calvin has written in the original languages, like ever, like literally everything, which is at least that we have access to, which is creepy. And freaky and weird. And I would guess I have better social skills. He had pretty good social skills, though. But um, So he didn't, most people that give the Warfield lectures, like, read them, right? They don't do extemporaneous talks. He did extemporaneous talks. And the last one he did pissed everybody off. And it was Calvin. He, he put Calvin in conversation with Kierkegaard. And, this, right? and the last one was Calvin and Julia of Norwich on divine anger. And he talked about. Wow, uh, it's amazing. I, I actually, it's been, it's in a book. I mean, it, you, you can, I'll put it in the show notes. But it, it, it's, it was amazing. And so he talked about how, like, Melanchthon wrote Calvin this letter and was like, "You're great, but you gotta like calm down. Stop people calling people rascals and gesticulating monkeys." By the way, Calvin wrote the same letter to Luther. Right, right, exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> and Calvin's kind of like he was saying. Calvin's kind of like, look. You know, Jeremiah was angry. Isaiah, people are John the Baptist angry. Jesus, I'm angry. <laughs> and he could touch his gift to realize people were like playing skittles or some game while Kevin's preaching, making fart noises in his general direction. Like, yeah. and, the, and so he's, you know, like thinking you'll be reproved and everything. And then he talks about like how Julian of Norwich almost died, you know, and she had this revelation of Christ. And she said, Christ said to her in this revelation, she's, she, as, according to her account, in me, there is no anger. And she really shrugged. She was pious and right. believed in the church. And I think she says something like, yeah, here it is. Actually, she's, she's, she's talking about trying to find resolution. Yeah, it's prayer. great. It's the great, one of the greatest passages in that book. Yeah, she says, yeah. Holy Church teaches me to believe that all these shall be condemned to everlasting hell. And given all this, I thought it impossible that all manner of things should be well, as our Lord revealed at the time. And I received no other answer in showing from our Lord God but this, what is impossible to you is not impossible for me. I shall keep my word and I shall make all things well. And, and so I think there is something about the paradox of, of, of these things that, that for us is impossible and for God are, are possible, blessed possibilities. It, it's tricky also, uh, even in the Gospels, because is Jesus cleansing the temple kind of like a— Come on, guys. An imprecation of sorts, <laughs> or when he pronounces the woes against the scribes right. and Pharisees in Matthew 23, then at the end he says, your house will be left to you desolate. Is that an imprecatorial impre- statement? I think maybe just straight, yeah, straight up judgment. In other words, I mean, Jesus was um, was angry on more than a few occasions. Right. Yeah. 
So how do you reconcile, maybe it's a Sermon on the Mount context uh, issue. It's Matthew 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and that's early, and Matthew 23 and the cleansing of the temple is late. Um, so I'm just one, I wonder about taking the love your enemy statement out of Matthew 5 and not reconciling that with other I'd Jesus events. Say, I'd want to say it's like actually, well, this is because I'm tons of Robert Capon right now, but Robert Capon in the book on the parables is that like basically he sees this movement early on, you get the parables of the kingdom and they're talking about the kingdom is Catholic present and mysterious. And then he thinks like in the gospels, when we move more towards like Jesus letting the messianic secret out. That's when we get the parables of grace, the, the, the lost sheep. And, lost and Matthew's yeah, well, he actually thinks, and he argues that you see this, it, it, there's some exceptions, but he thinks in the synoptic accounts, you can see the pattern, even though they're, they're divergent at points. But overall, the Geshishas, I think, kind of remains. And he says, you know, then towards the end, you get the parables of judgment, right? And But what if the parables, parables of judgment are also ultimately self-referential? Like that, that the judge, the, the judge judged in our place. Well, it's so, also the week of ju- it's a week of judgment. Yeah, I mean the, the cross is the judgment of God. Yeah, upon the world. I, yeah, I think I do think the last mandate though was the last man. Love is evil. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I think it, it's. But I think the tension's there. I mean, I think the terms of. I always tell people, you know, when people say, you know, I really like, I really love Jesus, but I don't like Paul. I go, that's not true. The Jesus you love. Whether or not you realize it or not, it's through the lenses of Paul's doctrine of grace. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. That's where the whole canon's really necessary. But one of the last things that Jesus says in Matthew, just uh, it's not a Johannan text, is all judgment has been given to me under heaven and earth. And then he gives yeah. the Great Commission. So the last thing you see in Matthew is the great king, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It's go out and preach the gospel and make disciples, but all judgment has been given unto me. So that has a, you know, maybe it has an eschatological yeah. tone to but it. He also throws the keys to us. He does. But also he's the judge judged in our place, right? He's the one who has the right to judge yeah. and is judged by sinners. I who mean, shall I, bring who shall bring judgment? Right. Says, it's yeah. like he who died for I wouldn't in, I wouldn't attach those comments to the, what his statement is in Matthew 28, but in general, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. So we should all, I guess, ju- judge generously because <laughs> we're all in need of generous well, judgment. I think, I think whatever God does, it, it, Jesus is pretty clear, we shall be judged as we judge. He says that also, about five times. But also, the implications aren't judgments. They're petitions for God yeah. to, ar- to arise. But also, I wonder, like, is... So anger and judgment... I mean, well, let's just say anger, right? I mean, you think about sometimes when you've done something awful to someone, right? And they don't know it yet or something. And suddenly, and, and, and you're friends with them, right? And their gaze becomes searing to you. Like, even, right? Like, <laughs> I'm, it, I'm trying not to look at you while you're saying exactly, that. Right, <laughs> but I wonder, like, if... Because do we, when we talk about divine anger, are we talking about what the holy love of God looks like in relationship to rebellion and East of Eden? So, like, is... It, it, does God's disposition towards the creature, even the fallen creature, change? Or is it that our experience of the holy love of God changes when we're, you know, curved inward? <laughs> you know, the curvature to self, like, actually makes it feel like anger. Well, I think, you know, there is a, there is a langer, anger if it's a function of love. I mean, I think their anger, a loving anger, is, is a means between apathy 
and rage. In other words, out of control rage is, doesn't help. But anybody. we only know that from the creaturely perspective and as sinful creatures. Like we can well, only say that experientially right, sinful I'm, creatures. But, but all right. But what I'm saying is that I find in my own experience that you know I have four sons and I, and you know worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of high school kids. Frequently, the ones I was angry the most with were the ones I loved the most. And I don't think it was just because I was disappointed. So I think there's a sense where uh, you know. Like so, I, so what you're saying is we could think about the love, love and anger, guy like that. I, I thought we so. couldn't do the theology, though, for this <laughs> We can do it from, like, we can just do theology for your experience. Oh, don't be up. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what I meant about the psalm thing. I, if, if you're not a biblical scholar, if you're a theologian, then you can do whatever you want to. Well, exactly. But if, you kind of, if you're kind of concerned about textual stuff, it's a little harder to do that. But anyway, I think it's a great topic. I actually did. This has been really interesting. Good. Amen to that. And thank you all for listening. And uh, judge generously. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't pray any of these psalms our direction. Yeah, especially not our way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> God bless. Shot rings out in the Memphis sky